Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. There's a, a story from Adam Coleman in the New York Post. Critical race theory advocates are gaslighting Americans for power and profit. America's supposed racial divide has a class element that we are all supposed to ignore. But for the past two years, I couldn't ignore the number of media outlets and supposed intellectuals who have discarded the legitimate concerns of the middle class because they, the elite, supposedly know what's best for us and our children. The anti-racism movement has come to Main Street and no one asked for its arrival. The average American isn't very ideological because that is a luxury most Americans can't afford when they're trying to make ends meet and support their families, unlike the economic and intellectual elite. Men and women who have made their entire careers hypothesizing about the makeup of America never actually listen to Americans. We recoil listening to their conception of American life for all races. Then the ideologues gaslight us, claiming we fight it uh, because of our hatred of the truth rather than our disgust for radical elitists who find pleasure in telling us how to behave. Anti-racists use race as a weapon for compliance and domination over the sensibilities of good people. When parents showed up at school board meetings across the country because they don't like this vision that has been imposed on their children, the anti-racists slandered them for resisting their new dogma, critical race theory, was also used to overshadow parental complaints about masking their children. Take Ibram Kendi's latest piece in The Atlantic in which he claims the Republican Party is the party of white supremacy. Understand, when anti-racists like Kendi write books and op-eds about their desire to deconstruct America's white supremacist social structures, they never discuss deconstructing the one social construct that allows racism to exist, race itself. Now, I moderated a panel last night at Emory University. Yep, uh, hung out with the Emroids at Emory University. Moderated a panel on critical race theory, whether critical race theory should be taught in schools. Uh, Terry Schilling, the president of the American Principles Project, and then two professors, uh, Professor Haas and Brewer at um, the University of North Georgia, they're both education professors. They debated each other. Now, I, I kind of felt awkward and bad. It, it was one against two. I was not a participant. I was the moderator. My job was to to make sure the conversation went well, and I didn't want to stick my nose in and and be a partisan in the conversation when my job was to be the, the moderator and wanted everybody to feel comfortable on stage together that they were going to get a fair shake and not have me browbeating them. I got to tell you, though, what, what struck me as most interesting, and I don't mean this critically of anyone on stage, but how muddied the definitions were for critical theory. Terry Schilling is the uh, president of the American Principles Project, and, and his point was one that the the other the, the the two professors who opposed him on the issue of critical theory in schools they actually agreed with him on we should not be teaching kids that because of the color of their skin they are either oppressed or an oppressor we should not be teaching kids that everybody on the stage agreed with that 
What I just thought was interesting that among the three of them, that they all three, I, I asked each of them for for starters, for presuppositional uh, conversation, to give their definition of what critical theory is. And, and the two professors, of course, fell back on, well, it's law school theory on the way you see power. Um, Terry Schilling's, and I'm paraphrasing each of them, was it, it's teaching kids uh, that they're oppressed or oppressor, that America is um, a, a perpetually racist, systemically racist society. And they're all right and wrong. They're all, they all get at the gist of it. But I guess I'm kind of frustrated because I actually have uh, gone to law school, been in seminary, plowed through this, and, and I wish that uh, we could all kind of get at exactly the problem. And I think Terry did a pretty good job of getting the application of how critical theory is. Uh, and I, so I want to say this. No one, and now you listen, I, I know how some of you are. I'm going to say something and your gut reaction is going to be to be furious with me because you're not going to listen to everything I'm saying because you want to be mad. Listen to everything I'm saying before you react, please. Critical race theory is not taught in the public schools of America. It is not taught in the public schools of America. When the left says it's not being taught, they are telling the truth. There's a problem, though. And this is where the truth can sometimes be used to obfuscate the reality. Critical race theory is not being taught in 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 public schools in America. No, what's being taught is American history through the lens of critical theory. Critical theory is a way to view the world. It is, if you will, the glasses lenses. So you're, you're not being taught to see the, the world with critical theory, or I, I'm sorry, you're not being taught critical theory. When you look out into the world, you get put the glasses on. The glasses don't teach you critical theory. The glasses bring the world into focus. And if the lenses in the glasses are critical theory, you see the world through critical theory. And that's very important that everyone understand this. And, and all of you who are, were mad at me the moment I said critical theory is not told you, yes, it is. You misunderstand me. Critical theory is a framework. It is taught in law schools to explain how the world works. And what Terry Schilling from American Principles Project was getting at is that when the teachers put on the glasses and get the kids to put on the glasses, where the lenses are focused on critical theory, you're teaching American history, but you're teaching American history in a way that sees racism everywhere. That's what critical theory does. If I can articulate it for you, critical theory, critical race theory, is a way of explaining the world and its power dynamics so that one understands the world through the lens of all things being about race and the power imbalances of race. 
And uh, the view, the framing comes from the idea of intersectionality. Critical theory itself overall doesn't depend just on race. Critical theory depends on the intersection of people's characteristics, uh, their sexuality, their gender, their faith or lack thereof, their handicap or lack thereof, their race, their ethnicity, and where all of those intersect in life. So critical theory believes that there are power imbalances and they come from dominant and oppressed classes of people. And the dominant people are white Christian heterosexual men in particular, and uh, the most oppressed are the people who are the exact opposite of that. And critical race theory then uses that to teach American history, language, mathematics, so that everything is hyper-focused on race and, and, and desperate outcomes are explained as being about race, whether it's true or not. What I found fascinating in this conversation yesterday, and I wish it would have gone on for another hour because I really would have wanted to get probed in this. It happened organically over the course of an hour and a half conversation, and it got to the point of whose history do we teach? And that ultimately is the argument, is it not? Because a critical theorist would tell you we've got to stop teaching George Washington and instead teach about George Washington's slaves because they're the oppressed people. And under critical theory, the more oppressed you are, the more moral clarity you have. And so if we want to have the moral clarity of really understated America, we need to understand America from the viewpoint of the oppressed class. But here's the offensive reality for some. It's not really offensive but for a lot of people it is. America was built by a bunch of white people on the backs of a bunch of non-white people. What a critical theorist would tell you to do is focus on those backs. The problem is the ideas that shaped us, that guided us, that governed us, we've got a bunch of white presidents. We finally had a black president. We've got a black female vice president. We have clearly had progress. Uh, time heals all wounds, but the left would have us focus on the non-white people claiming that we disproportionately have learned the history of the white people. The problem here is that it's the white people who had the power. So they're the ones who shaped the country. And you can say, well, they were slave owners or whatnot, but it doesn't hide the fact that George Washington has more influence over the shaping of this country than his slave did. It is uh, absolutely a fact that Thomas Jefferson advocated for abolition. Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. Thomas Jefferson wrote that, that all men are created equal. I, I was kind of uh, shocked by one of the professors when I talked about, um, he was, in fact, Thomas Jefferson, ultimately an abolitionist who, who did, did not actually practice it in life, but he called for abolition. And he wanted uh, the country to move away from slavery. He wrote about this fairly distinctly. He said, in fact, in a lot of his letters that we absolutely had to get rid of slavery. Uh, John Adams as well, in fact, says, I, I speak with grief. I speak it with anguish, 
Brightons or our oppressors. I speak it with shame. I speak it with indignity. We are slaves, the most abject sort of slaves, John Adams said, and then use that logic later in life to call for the abolition of the slavery of black people in the United States. And Thomas Jefferson himself argued that it was going to be necessary to get rid of slavery once we had fought our way out of the British. But he constantly kept kicking the can down the road, hoping that a future generation would solve it. And ultimately, we got to war. The problem here gets to the issue that Terry Shillings wanted to focus on yesterday. We got a bunch of people in this country who are elitist who have come under the uh, delusion of the 1619 Project who believe that America was actually premised to prop up slavery. It is a retelling of American history. And Nicole Hannah-Jones, the writer of the 1619 Project, has made very clear that she wanted to reframe American history. But if you reframe American history, that does not mean you're telling the truth about American history. And in fact, she ultimately got to the point where she's admitted she's telling a story. The problem is the New York Times has embraced her story and tried to turn it into a school curriculum for schools that tell the same story. And the story is wrong. Let me read you. Keep in mind that Nicole Anna Jones's premise is that we were founded in slavery in 1619 and that the whole reason for the Revolutionary War in 1776 was to end, was to preserve slavery because the British were going to get rid of it. The British didn't get rid of slavery until the 1800s. Let me just read um, this from Bernard Balin's Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. There had been deliberate opposition to establishments before the revolution, but it had been scattered and ineffective. In Virginia, challenges had been made as early as the 1740s by itinerant New Light Presbyterian preachers who shaped a spontaneous, formless outpouring of evangelical fervor into articulate defiance of ecclesiastical law. In Connecticut and Massachusetts, the religious awakening of the mid-century had spawned uncontrollable groups of separates, strict congregationalists, who believed their evangelicalism to be the only true orthodoxy and who therefore refused to accept the legal benefits available to officially recognized dissenters. All of this came with a growing chorus in the North against slavery. They continued to pursue it, the congregations of the North. By July of 1776, much had already been done to extend the reign of liberty to enslave black people in Massachusetts, efforts that had been made as early as 1767 to abolish the slave trade. And in 1771 and 1774, the Massachusetts legislature voted conclusively to do so, but was rebuffed by the governor's veto, the British governor's veto. In the same year, the Continental Congress pledged itself to discontinue the slave trade everywhere, while Rhode Island, acknowledging that those who are desirous or enjoying all the advantages of liberty themselves should be willing to extend personal liberty to others, ruled that slaves imported to the colony were automatically free. Connecticut did the same thing. Delaware prohibited the importation of slavery. Pennsylvania taxed the trade out of existence. There, too, in 1775, the Quakers, long the most outspoken advocates of emancipation, though not leaders of the revolutionary movement, formed the first anti-slavery society in the Western world. In the South, there were at least a general acquiescence in the Congress's inclusion of the slave trade in the non-importation program and satisfaction on the part of many when in April 1776, Congress fulfilled its earlier pledge and voted that no slaves shall be imported into any of the 13 colonies. 
It's a lie to say we're systemically racist. It's a lie to say we were founded on slavery. And it's a lie to say we're still a racist society. There are racists, but we are not racist. And we shouldn't be teaching it in school. I want you guys to do me a favor. Uh, the third hour coming up in about 30 minutes. I want to spend a little bit talking about free speech and Elon Musk because there is a great, great, great freak out from the left. He has raised the money, it appears, to be able to buy Twitter. And the left is very unhappy about it. But first, I want to play you this audio from Fred Smith of FedEx. We have substantial inflation. I think the best person uh, that commented on uh, the current situation before it got started was Larry Summers, the former Democratic uh, Treasury Secretary who forewarned about these inflationary pressures. It's a combination of a lot of things that began with the pandemic and the instant reduction of demand and then the stimulus payments created demand for goods and then the third stimulus payment about a year ago created a significant labor shortage. And all of those went together to create the situation we have today with too many dollars chasing too few uh, goods and still many, many uh, jobs unfilled. So inflation is a big problem, no question about it. Yeah, maybe we should listen to the head of the company that really kept the global supply chain going, uh, including making sure that your deliveries of Omaha Steaks showed up in time. Uh, there's a perfect segue, is it not? With Omaha Steaks, you get deliciousness delivered to your door. All you do, throw it on the grill. It's fantastic stuff. OmahaSteaks.com, you put Eric in the search bar, and you will get over 50% savings on delicious steaks. You can get shrimp, you can get chicken, you can get fish, you can get boneless pork chops, you can get pork tenderloins. My gosh, you can get everything at Omaha Steaks and they've kept their supply chains open and flowing. So not only do you get it, but you also get 100% satisfaction guarantee. It's no risk. If you're not happy, they will take care of you. Just go to omahasteaks.com and put Eric, E-R-I-C-K, in the search bar. Not only do you get 100% satisfaction guarantee, the butcher cut fillets, or you can get the Eric Erickson package of the stuff I order, which reminds me, I got to get an order, and I use my own code, by the way. Uh, you get 12 burgers for free. You get the Omaha Steak burgers for free. They're not just your standard ground chuck. They are the Omaha Steak blended burger. They're delicious. They're juicy. They turn out perfect every time. Go to omahasteaks.com today. Put Eric, E-R-I-C-K, in the search bar, and you can get deliciousness delivered to your door from omahasteaks.com whenever you're ready for it. And cook it on the grill. It's delicious. Hi there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be a part of this here program? Um, I need to read a somewhat lengthy excerpt from the Washington Post for you guys. It is, this is going to be the bothersome half hour. I'm going to break you down and then I'm going to try to build you right back up. If I can, I may fail. This is not good stuff, but I got to read this for you. Um, and, and I want to go into this because I know sometimes um, I, I get emails from people saying, just tell us what it says. You don't have to read the No, no, I, I've got to read this for you. But to begin to read this for you, I also have to play some audio for you contained in the story from the Washington Post. I, I'm going to play it for you. And after I play it for you, I'll describe what it is. This is, gosh, 
Y'all, my goodness. Listen, listen to this. This is a robotic dog. It is on four legs. It has a PA system on its back. Yes, it's a robotic dog with a camera and a PA system roaming the empty streets of Shanghai. And the dog is saying, take your temperature, disinfect frequently, avoid gatherings in crowds, ventilate frequently, prevent epidemics scientifically, remain civilized, wear face masks, wash your hands, take your temperature. There's no one on the street. It's a robotic dog. The city of Shanghai is 91 million people living in this single city. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, yeah, 90, 91 million people. Um, it is dystopian, to say the least. Is it, I, I read the 91 million, and now I'm starting to think that I don't actually have that number right. I, that, that just sounds too high to me, but it is China, so who knows. But let me... 25 million, not 91, 25 million people. I gotta, I've got to read you this. You're going to want to listen to this. For weeks, China's most populous city, Shanghai, has been under strict lockdown orders in an effort to control a coronavirus outbreak. Its 25 million residents have been trapped at home, struggling to feed themselves or get medical help for sick family members. Others have been corralled into makeshift quarantine centers and temporary hospitals, unsure when they will be allowed to leave. Li Moyen, 34, was among those restricted to their homes. She lives with her parents, both in their 70s, in the Putuo district of Shanghai, where she's been confined since March 27th, working as a part-time translator and trying to secure enough groceries for her household. For Li, who grew up in Shanghai, Seeing the once bustling financial hub, which residents previously believed was a model for balanced COVID prevention measures with normal life, turn into a ghost town has been unsettling. The prospect of a long lockdown has started to take an emotional toll. One video shared widely shows residents of a large compound in Putuo screaming from their balconies. In the video, a bystander can be heard saying, this whole building is screaming. What's the root problem? People don't know how long the situation will last. Under government rules, the almost 300,000 residents who have tested positive for the coronavirus since early March and their close contacts must be sent to mass quarantine centers or to hospitals, depending on the severity of their symptoms. Many residents fear this more than getting the virus. Unwilling to be confined in the quickly built temporary field hospitals, some of them repurpose schools or construction sites. They often do not have doctors and nurses on hand or private facilities for sleeping or bathing. Videos have shown people fighting over stretched thin supplies, trying to plug leaks, and in some cases, attempting to escape centers. On Thursday, residents in an apartment complex in the Zhengjin high-tech park in Pudong clashed with police after authorities said the compound would be converted into an isolation site. 
Footage posted online showed police dragging residents away as a woman begged them to stop and bystanders yelled, why are you hitting old people? Let them go. The rest of the city of 25 million people must stay home under orders enforced by community workers and police. Drones fly above, communicating with the public, sometimes delivering medicine to the elderly. Only healthcare workers, delivery drivers, and volunteers can move freely. Robots patrolling the street encourage residents to disinfect their homes, avoid gatherings, and remain civilized. The measures, which began in phases in late March, before being extended across the city in early April, gave residents and officials little time to prepare. Food shortages are rife across the city. Restrictions have caused supply chain bottlenecks and strained the neighborhood committees that are responsible for looking after the lockdown residents. Many like Lee have had to rely entirely on themselves to figure out how to survive. We're in limbo. And many, including my parents, felt betrayed. It was painful for them to wake up to the fact that we were left on our own, Lee said. The reality does not match up with the official narrative of ample food and medical supplies. Wu Ying, 27, who works in business development, noticed an article on WeChat last week that showcased her neighborhood as a success story. Local party propaganda praised the neighborhood committee of Cheng Feng Jikun, where Li lives, or Wu lives, for sending 25,000 packages of food a day to the 100,000 residents in her area of western Shanghai. But in the last two weeks, Wu said, she's only received one package, a plastic bag containing a single carrot, a single head of cabbage, a single yam, and a few chicken wings that were already spoiled. Residents who tried to bring their grievances to officials. When Shanghai Communist Party Chief Lin Quian visited residents this week, videos on social media showed elderly women confronting him about the lack of food. Others showed residents shouting from their windows, save us, we don't have enough. That's a senior citizen standing at a window, opening it up and yelling, we can't get food, they can't order food, we don't know what's going on. He's been referred to as the shouting warrior, being praised on WeChat. Wu, like many Shanghai residents, has had to rely on group buying, teaming up with neighbors to source supplies and order in bulk. As the head of that effort for more than 350 people in a residential compound, Wu must verify sellers, negotiate prices, and ensure delivery workers have the right passes to travel to the compound and drop off the goods. Every day, I have to ask around for connections to buy rice or hazmat suits. Why are we the ones bearing this responsibility? Wu shared screenshots of her recent efforts to secure packages of rice purchased a week ago for the group. Ashley Chi, a 28-year-old product manager at a tech company in Shanghai, said her neighbors leave supplies outside their doors for each other. She left tampons outside hers and barter among themselves. Chi recently traded about one cup of soy sauce for five liters of bottled water. He wanted to pay me, but who needs money now? We need water. He needs soy sauce. On Monday, 
Shanghai officials said areas without a coronavirus case in the previous 14 days could begin to allow people to leave their compounds. But the messaging was mixed on the ground. Some residents are still being told to stay put. This article goes on and on and on. Dead animals are in the streets. There is no food, no one feeding them. They're starving to death. We don't know how many people are starving in their homes. There are reports of people jumping from their balconies to their death. They've given up in despair. They have no hope. They're starving. The government is not answering. They're jumping out of windows to their death. This is the Communist Party in action. I have long had this theory that China is actually not on the rise but in decline. American elites seem to think China is, for some reason, on the rise. I don't think China is on the rise. It is on the decline. You read these stories out of Shanghai of people jumping to their deaths because they're starving to death and the government won't help them. You read the stories of of just the botched food delivery in Shanghai. The Communist Party praising a local community outreach group for delivering tens of thousands of meals to neighbors in one neighborhood in Shanghai and the residents in the area say they didn't get those meals. What they got was a single head of cabbage, a single carrot, a single yam, spoiled chicken. The Communist Party can't cope. The COVID zero policy is deeply intolerant. But there's something else here you got to note. And this is the really important part of it here. There are people in the United States who thought we should have been like China. Dr. Oz running in Pennsylvania is one of them. He praised China's zero COVID policy. He praised the mask mandates. He praised this. I wonder if Donald Trump knew before he endorsed him. I doubt it. There are people in this country who thought we should be more like China. There are people to this day who will browbeat you and bully you if you're not wearing a mask. China has serious, serious problems right now, and it's going to destabilize that country. And I suspect in the angst, what uh, Xi Jinping always does is he tries to rally nationalist fervor in his favor. And so he goes to war with someone. He, he bullies some other country, hoping the people rally. I don't know that it'll work for him this time, but it's not just there. There are other problems as well. In Sri Lanka, the island on the southern end of India, there are food riots Sri Lanka faces imminent threats of starvation, senior politicians warn. The Speaker of the House of Parliament says there will be very acute food shortages and economic crisis is just the beginning. The food, gas, and electricity shortages will get worse. There will be very acute food shortages and starvation. Abarwardana told the legislature the economic meltdown in Sri Lanka spiraled on Wednesday as Sri Lankan rupee plunged to become the world's worst performing currency. Sovereign dollar bonds dropped to trade at deeply distressed levels while the stock market fell a further 2%. Over the past few months, Sri Lanka has been facing dire financial crises on multiple fronts. Oh, and get ready. The avian flu outbreak causing unprecedented deaths in wild Minnesota birds and eagles is spreading. The strain of influenza has proved nearly always fatal to owls, eagles, hawks, and other raptors and is unprecedented in size, scope, and harm done to wild birds. Although it poses little threat to humans, it could get into the feed supply with chickens. They've now detected it as far south as Georgia. War... Rumors of war, plague, famine. 
certainly all sounds apocalyptic, doesn't it? It certainly sounds in time stuff. And I am uh, continually, largely because I, I guess I am the, the conservative talk show host who spends a lot of time talking about faith and culture and stuff. I get a lot of this, get tons of emails these days from people uh, saying, what on earth is going on? Are these the times? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, we've kind of been there since, since the moment of the resurrection. The, the countdown to Armageddon began. Are we getting closer? Yeah, I think so. Birth pangs? Yeah, maybe so. But here is what I know. Um, we did not go the way of, of China. And in fact, many of the people who advocated going the way of China lost elections or they're about to lose elections. I also know that uh, we, by virtue of being blessed to be in the Western Hemisphere on the North American continent, are to some degree a little bit more isolated than the interconnectedness of Africa, Europe, and Asia together. We have a grain supply here, a food supply here that we can use to take care of ourselves and then provide the excess and export. That's good. But here's what I know multiple, primarily. It's this. There are a lot of this stuff you can't control. You can take care of yourself, you can take care of your family, you can take care of your neighbors, you can seek the welfare of the community where you live, and you can choose not to be freaked out about this stuff. It's worth knowing it's going on. It's worth knowing you can't avoid it. It will cause geopolitical instability, but you can't control it. So there's no reason to worry about it. Worry about what you can control, which is taking care of yourself and your family locally. Maybe you want to learn how to plant a garden. Maybe you want to stock up in the freezer some food. Maybe you want to make sure you're engaged in your community in order to get resources. But what I can tell you is in China right now, they've become so dependent on the government and the government's not functioning. People are literally jumping off of balconies to their death. At least in this country, we still have a spirit of rugged individualism that allows us within a free marketplace of ideas and transactions to exchange goods and services to each of our betterment. Even if we can't get as much as we once wanted, we're still going to be better off. The American system continues to outperform all others, and we should be thankful for that. Now, Speaking of, one of the companies that's committed to the American system is Patriot Mobile. They are a group of patriots, Christian conservatives. They want your business, and they'll take a portion of their profits and contribute it to the conservative movement. You can get free activation by using my name. You go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. In so doing, you can move your phone number over, your existing one, or you can get a new phone number. If you have an unlocked phone, you can use it. My iPhone is unlocked. Could take it over to Patriot Mobile. In fact, my old unlocked iPhone has a Patriot Mobile account with it, and it's very easy to do. 972-PATRIOT is their phone number if you want to call them. Tell them Eric sent you. You get free activation. 972-PATRIOT, 100% U.S.-based customer service, and they give you great discounts. They're good service. They use the same cell towers everybody else uses, so you don't have to worry about the quality of service, and they're just good people. 972-PATRIOT or patriotmobile.com slash Eric. Go today. Well, there it is. The Florida House of Representatives has voted to end the Reedy Creek Tax Improvement District. That's the Disney Tax District. The Senate and the House have passed the legislation. It now goes to Governor Ron DeSantis, who will be signing it into law, getting rid of it. All right. To the phones we go. Ray, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the program. Yes, I had a concern. You've talked about solar farms a few times, but the real concern where you were just talking about grains and where we have our farmland. I used to travel up in the Midwest, up in the Northwest uh, 
Indiana and North Carolina and different areas where there's farmland. And a number of the customers that I've talked to said they've been approached to convert their farms into solar farms. And there's uh, tax uh, incentives for them to do it as well. And if they keep converting our farmland to solar farms, what's that going to do to our food supply? Yep, that's a great point. Uh, you are not the first to raise this concern, and it is a problem in, in some states. Uh, now, a lot of uh, a, a lot of people I know who have done this have unused field that they've converted, and then a lot of people, of course, out, out west with desert land uh, have been doing it. But the problem here is a lot of times the unused land is because crop prices have been so low uh, they haven't uh, needed to use the land, so they put solar panels on them. Well, you can't get the solar panels back off very easily now that prices are going up. We are headed into a global wheat crisis and a global corn crisis, wheat more than anything, and you can't readily convert that land back once the solar panels are on it to be able to plant the wheat. Environmentalists have been so agitating against using fossil fuels for energy They've lost the plot. They've lost the. I actually don't think they care. I, I think when you look at uh, there's a strain of environmentalists that are deeply against industrialism to begin with. They don't like mass farms. So they think this is good. They want us all to have a cow and food in the backyard, a garden in the backyard. And they would be perfectly happy if we all did that. And then they would come for our cows because of methane emissions. And this is a deeply unstabilizing period in society globally. Uh, and we're going to have to figure out our farm policy and disincentivize solar panels in areas of crop production, which some states are actually proactively doing, making sure that good cropland is not converted over because of potential food issues. When we come back, Elon Musk, Twitter, and free speech.